Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. Uh, that's John just giggling at my complete inability to get the technology right. How you doing? It's uh, David here. You've, I really shouldn't be let out my own. Uh, you know the drill. It's the podcast. Strange, strange week, but the podcast is all about trying to make economics a little bit more comprehensible. And actually, we're trying to learn economics together, for want of a better description. So uh, if you fancy that, just tune in. If you fancy learning even a wee bit more, have a look at the courses we have on offer. Now, I'm joined, as always, by your man, Mr. Davis. What's the crack, my man? How are you, Mac? How's what, the crack? What's going on? The crack is all good, John. So what a mental, mental week. And we're going to get into we're going to go, we're going to go full, full Brexit. Yeah. Full absolutely. Britannia doesn't rule the waves, it waves the rules. We're doing the whole thing. And we're going to go to a special guest, an old friend of both of ours in London, Andrea Catherwood, in a couple of minutes. But how's your week been, my man? It's been good. It's been good. And as you say, it's been a cracker of the week in terms of news and stuff. Actually, I have to ask you, how did Cal get on in the Leaving Cert debacle? In, in the dreaded Leaving Cert. At the end oh of the day... Oh, my God. I he, felt so sorry for them. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I, I think that, look, you and I have always thought the Leaving Cert is a total and utter... <laughs> well, what is right. it? You know, it really is, you know? And it's like, it's like it, you know what I think? It's, it's Irish, the Irish equivalent of military service. That's what I've always yeah. thought. It's the one yeah. thing. It's the one thing that bonds us all together because we've all gone through it. That and Peg Sayers. That and Peg Sayers, but they've taken Peg Sayers off the Irish John. Peg has gone. She is no more. Peg Sayers, I'm sure, was responsible for most of the depression in Ireland in the mid eighties. <laughs> the eighties, the eighties, seventies, and sixties, apparently, and yeah, up until yeah. the, up until the turn of the century, she was still there. But no, Cow's grand. Uh, he seems to be happy with it. But, you know, I think the most egregious thing, we leave it at this, John, is that the Leaving Cert reduces not only the kids down to a number, but it reduces the notion of education down to an exam. Yeah, yeah, And yeah, yeah. I think as this podcast is all about, it's about lifelong learning. You're never too old to pick up a book. You're never too old to learn, let's say, a bit of economics or philosophy or history or whatever, whatever takes your fancy. But because we focus so much on this one exam as the be-all and end-all, what it does is it actually, I think, intimidates people away from education as they get older. 
because of this collective memory of what education is, which is this bloody exam. And if we didn't do that, I believe we'd have a much more healthy, lifelong learning approach in Ireland, where people in their 50s and 60s or 40s and 30s would take something up. And that's what I think. So I think it's a much more deeply egregious problem with the education system as manifested in the Leaving Cert that it actually scares us off education. Yeah. But let's, let's leave it and go on to the big news of the day. So the deal's done. The Irish border issue is agreed between the EU and the UK. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson insists this is a good replacement for the backstop, even if the two sides couldn't agree on a future trade deal. What's on in this deal is the final deal. I would say to my honourable friend that, yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain, very tightly defined circumstances. Listen to this Churchillian quote from a Dutch newspaper over the weekend about Boris Johnson. Never in the field of human conflict was so much fucked up for so many by so few. (laughs) And that is how we will start this podcast. (laughs) That is great, isn't it? So yeah, it's Brexit. Yes, it's rearing its ugly head again. Not only that, but it's really taken an extraordinary turn. And I tell you what we'll do is let's go straight to London. Let's talk to Andrea Catherwood, our old mate who was bridesmaid at my wedding made one of the most outrageous speeches that has ever been delivered at a wedding. She's also the presenter of Women's Hour and the media show on BBC Radio 4. She's been a foreign correspondent. She's been in Kosovo, Iraq, all over the place. She's got her finger on the pulse of what's going on in the UK right now. Andrea, how are you? I am very good, David. It is absolutely lovely to uh, be joining you, even if it's only remotely. And I'll tell you now, what is going on in the UK? Right, let's get straight into it. <laughs> well, you may well ask, and you are far from alone, because an awful lot of very seasoned political journalists in the UK are scratching their heads and asking the same question. I mean, we've seen so many extraordinary things happen over the past four years, but to have the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland stand up in the House of Commons and say, in response to a question about the latest bill that they want to put through, that yes, it will break international law. And then he said, in a very specific and limited way. Well, you can imagine that Twitter was a light about all the things that we could do that would break the law, if only in a specific and limited way. But, you know, the bigger picture is it's quite extraordinary. You know, and it was, it's deeply shocking to people in the UK... Uh, uh, from from all sides of this bitter political divide. What I'm going to do is, in in a minute, I'm going to talk to you about your hometown, about Belfast and what it means for Northern Ireland and and what you you see going on. Again, for Irish people, it's, is it again the English Johnson using Ireland as a a pawn in a negotiating strategy? We'll come on to that in a second, but talk to me about the practicalities of this. So this was announced last Wednesday, out of the blue, it seems. Yeah. Okay. What what are they playing at? What do you think? Is it going cost on? people it did it did catch people off guard. So the idea is that during the uh, negotiations, the Tory party, the Tory the Tory government has come up against this idea that the deal that they did, the one that Boris Johnson described as oven ready, 
the withdrawal agreement that he got through is actually perhaps not quite what he thought it was. Now, I mean, this brings up a lot of ideas. Is this incompetence? You know, did they, did Boris Johnson and his team really negotiate and sign the Northern Ireland Protocol without understanding it? Because everybody else understood it. You know, the commentary out were talking a lot about how the DUP had been sold down the river, there would in effect be checks, therefore Northern Ireland would not be trading under the same circumstances as the rest of the UK. I don't think anyone can really say we didn't know that. So, so was it really incompetence or is it duplicity? Did he know it? As we, and, and now is saying that he didn't. So he's written over the weekend, he wrote an extraordinary article in the Daily Telegraph. Johnson did. Johnson did. Remember, Johnson is a columnist. He used to write for the Daily Telegraph, right? So this is what happens when you put journalists like you and me in charge yeah, of the country. Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, you should keep us, keep us. <laughs> a salutary lesson. This does not end well. <laughs> um, so, so he has written this extraordinary, I mean, it's such a dramatic article, where he says, he actually accuses the EU... Michel Barnier, of threatening to impose a food blockade in the Irish Sea. These are his words. He says that he has to protect Britain from the disaster of handing Brussels the power to carve up our country. I mean, it's, it's quite an extraordinary article. Almost saying, he also brings into it the Good Friday Agreement, saying that, that Brussels, that the EU, because of what they are, could, may do, could actually uh, endanger the peace in Northern Ireland, which, I mean, a, a lot of people who've been following this closely find beyond Phenomenal. audacious. Yeah, beyond audacious is a very, very diplomatic way of putting it. Usually in this podcast, the language is a little bit more flowery when it comes to this. But let's talk about Johnson and Cummings and the psychology of this. So if we are talking about... I think you can park the idea of incompetence for a moment because, as you said, the world and his wife was talking about the DUP and Northern Ireland and the border and the Irish Sea. This was all in the mix. And everyone knew at the end that Johnson basically chose a deal over the DUP. Absolutely. And then went to the country I think with that, that is, I, th right. I think that so let's, that's not So let's go to the lying idea and comments and the idea that these guys always double down all the time. Well, we've seen this doubling down and it's, uh, you know, we saw it when Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's advisor, breached the very strict lockdown rules that we had in place in the UK at the time. Um, yeah. This was at Easter last year, or Easter this year, rather. And, you know, the country just watched and, and couldn't quite believe on a bank holiday when he came out and said, yeah, I did drive my car to the now infamous Barnard Castle, a beauty spot in the north of England, and I did it to check my eyesight. You know, nobody <laughs> believed that he wouldn't have to go at that point, and he didn't go. It was incredible, actually. It was incredible, it? but this, honestly, there are parallels with this. You know, nobody believed that he could do that and stay, and we had countless examples, I know you had them in, in Ireland too, where, you know, quite prominent figures were caught breaching the guidelines and they had to stand down. That's what people do. They have to resign if, they, if they're in the public eye and they screw up. Yeah, right? In our case, he brazened it out for about a week and then okay, stood down. But, but he but, did but stand down. But at the end down. of the day, there, was, we, there, we, was, there was a consequence mm, of behaviour. Right. That's the thing. Absolutely. And, you know, it's extraordinary that it didn't happen then. It's extraordinary, if we go back further, that the Tory party, the Tory MPs, their whip was removed. In other words, they were kind of kicked out of the the, Tor the parliamentary Tory party. This is like Kent Clark and all those old really well-known people like Dominic Grieve, who was a you know, former Attorney General, really big names. Again, pretty unbelievable at the time for for people who've been covering this for years and years. This can't this doesn't really happen. 
And now you've got Brandon Lewis, the Secretary of State, saying we're going to break international law. We're going to break the treaty that we just signed and not some other previous government, not some far left Corbynista government in the past. This uh, us. Yeah, the and fellas we, around we this table. In, we did it like in November and then we gave it to you to vote on at Christmas, just before Christmas in a general election where, where we got you to endorse what we'd done. And now we're saying we don't we don't like that anymore. I mean, it is, it's, these are extraordinary times and, you know, it's not just journalists who are deeply uncomfortable with this. What, probably the most interesting bunch of people, because obviously you'd expect the opposition to be uncomfortable, but a lot of people within Johnson's own party and very senior Tory grandees are really uncomfortable by this. It feels to me that this was the plan all along. So mm. it was like they almost got tired of talking about Northern Ireland and then said... Ah, sure, you know, let's mm. just give in for now, get the election, get the mandate, and then we'll do whatever we like. Mm. It's almost that kind of brazen Trumpism. That's, that's really interesting, and it's definitely a school of thought that says, look, do Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, do they really kind of want a no deal? But what they'd really like is for the EU to be the ones who walk away. You know, for yeah. the EU to just say, listen, guys, you know, you can't go around tearing up our international agreements there comes a point where we have to walk away. Then there's a no deal, but the Tory government get to say, ah, you know, it was the EU, it was the bad EU that walked away, leaving us with nothing else that we can do except be plucky and carry on and be this kind of little island that has, that is, uh, you know, trying to trade yep. now against yep. the odds and, and play into that narrative. I mean, it is certainly a suggestion that that is, you know, that's what they're trying to do. On the other hand, a lot of Tories, Tory MPs would say, no, no, absolutely not. And if you ask Michael Gove, he was asked about this over the weekend and he said, absolutely not. We still want a deal. We really want to deal with the EU and we still believe we can get one. But tell me about the Tories who are now very uncomfortable with this. Because if you think about the Tory party, right, the Tory party has always been the party of private property, which is based on law. Free trade, which is based on law, commercial enterprise. All of these are based on the idea that the legal system is untouchable. It's got to be paramount. And Absolutely. once you Indeed. sign a contract, mm -hmm. whether it's a mortgage contract mm -hmm. or a bank contract or a deal in any commercial way, because this, this is the party of free enterprise. They ran on this slogan, they're the party of law and order. <laughs> in pre in pre previously, you know? So, so, for example, so you've got John Major former yeah. Prime Minister, leader of the party. Yeah. And you've got uh, Michael Howard, who also led the Conservative Party and who's now in the House of Lords. Michael Howard is an arch-Brexiteer, yeah. one of the leading Eurosceptics, an arch-Brexiteer, and he has come out strongly against this. And his reason for it being, well, firstly, simply that you can't break the law. But he also said, which, you know, being more pragmatic, how are you going to do treaties with other countries Round the world, which is what they want to do, if you've broken the law on the first one. So you have an international treaty yeah, on absolutely. the very first yeah. one, because remember that J the Japan treaty that's been lauded uh, uh, quite a lot at the moment, that hasn't actually been signed yet. <laughs> no, there's no way yet. the Japanese... Well, will the Japanese sign it if, if we've just found out that Britain are going to break another treaty? Is it just us? I mean, is your, like, for example, what Johnson managed to do was create this sort of blue-collar, red-trouser coalition, right? He got Tories... <laughs> basically, it's true, John, like, Labour yeah, people. No, it's good. You know, it's, 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 you know, it's the pub and pies, you know, those 
the, the yeah. pies, the fellas in the north of England like that brigade, right? <laughs> well, the, who've know, never voted Tory before. They were, it gets they, them to vote. They were called the they're called the red wall seats because traditionally, if you look at a map of England, yeah. you can sort of see a wall of red in the north. Right. Um, and that was the red wall that the Tories find it really difficult to break to, to get inroads in. Traditionally. Into, traditionally. Yeah. And because they also, many of those Labour voters supported Brexit and they felt with, you know, for very good reasons, they felt that the Labour Party was not their party over Brexit. They voted for that oven-ready deal of Boris Johnson's. So a lot of them voted Tory for the first time in their lives, you know, to get Brexit done. It was a very, very snappy, uh, short phrase. And that is basically how the election was won. Do you think now that they're worried about breaking international law? Do you think there's a whole so this cohort? Is a very good, yeah, yeah, this is a good point. And, you know, is it all, you know, we, we always want, worry about this in, in London. You know, is this a kind of a Westminster bubble, this kind of metropolitan liberal elite all na- yeah. gazing at their own navels, you know? Um, I think that if you look at the, the, uh, the papers over the weekend, the headlines and our news headlines, of course, coronavirus is our lead story. We have a big problem in, in, in London and in the southeast and in the north of England at the moment. It looks like the rate is going up quite quickly and, very interestingly, only a few hours after the now famous breaking of international law in a specific and limited way was mentioned in the House of Commons, the Tory party did bring in very draconian new rules about uh, only six people being allowed to, to gather together anywhere in England. So that's grabbed the headlines. That's really what people are talking about. They're Um, talking about COVID. They're talking about COVID. They're talking about return to school. They're talking about the things that affect everybody's everyday life. Exactly. As this happens all around the world, you know? People care about what happens in their families and actually... Tomorrow morning. The breaking of international law, it's a bit out there. However, having said that, it has cut through. It has cut through quite a lot because... People are worried about a no-deal Brexit. That's not what they they wanted. And they are worried about having a lot of people who are deeply uncomfortable with a Prime Minister who appears to lie. Can I just ask about this oven-ready deal Mm. that they spoke about before? That basically, you know, it sounded great, but there were no details and nobody knew any of the details. They voted on the notion of this oven-ready deal. That's absolutely right. And it was a fudge. I mean, in, in the Northern Ireland Protocol, if you can be only very, very few nerdy people like me actually said time to read it. <laughs> but inherent in it, there is a fudge. But actually, by the way, listeners, she's a really normal person, you know. She goes out for a drink, she's crooked laugh. And then I come home and I read the Northern Ireland <laughs> Protocol to get to sleep. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, look, it's, there, there, there is ambiguity in it. But like there's ambiguity in the Northern Ireland Agreement, you know, the, the Good Friday Agreement. Well, wasn't that That's the of ambiguity work. was how it was described Absolutely. by Seamus Mallon. Just uh, get it over the line it and, and don't face yeah, the... But, but now what, what Boris Johnson is saying is that the interpretation, this extreme interpretation, these are his words, that the EU is, is putting onto this Northern Ireland Protocol means that the Good Friday Agreement could be undermined because the union would be undermined and it would actually endanger peace and stability in Northern Ireland. So, you know, he's... Boris Johnson is putting this on with a trial. He couldn't be laying it on any thicker. So what he's sort of saying this is, look, is, we the have words to of break Sammy Wilson. The, we have to break the law. Yeah. Because if we don't break the law, we're endangering peace in Northern Ireland. That's 
quite extraordinary. Well, but, that's wow. what he said in yeah. black and white. This, this of, isn't me. This this you, isn't actually me commenting on what he said. This is actually what he said. Kind of, I, I kind of feel sorry for the DUP at this stage, <laughs> <laughs> which is a pretty. But do you see what I mean? I mean, steady, no, Mark. I, steady on. <laughs> I know I've gone very rogue, very rogue this week. <laughs> but let's let's go back. Actually, I, I want to mention the DUP. I want to mention the bigger constitutional issue in the UK because this all feeds Andrea into. Scottish nationalism, our own nationalism. We've got the border poll talked about. We've got the census in Northern Ireland coming out, which is likely to confirm a switch for the first time ever Absolutely. in Catholic versus Protestant. We know that it doesn't always equate, but let's go back to the UK itself in terms of Scotland. If you're Nicholas Sturgeon, you're sitting in Glasgow or in Edinburgh, mm. you love this. You Why absolutely love you? this. This is, this is a huge vote-getter for the Scottish nationalists. Look, Boris Johnson himself is a huge vote-getter for Scottish nationalists. <laughs> These Etonian Tories are absolute meat and drink to the nationalist cause in Scotland. You're absolutely right. The le- the, you know, the, the, it makes it very easy. They don't, there's not much that has to be done. And, there, you know, there, there are big arguments in, you know, around, say, for example, education in, in, in Scotland has had some issues. There are clearly economic arguments that you know an awful lot more about than I do on both sides. But actually... The granular detail doesn't really have to be examined when Boris Johnson is sitting in 10 Downing Street because a lot of people in Scotland look at him and it's very easy for Nicola Sturgeon to make the case that she should be given a second go. Do you think this is going to speed up the breakup of the the UK? (laughs) Especially since actually this week as well that the the Shetland Islands are looking to break away from Scotland. (laughs) John, I mean, I, that is... That is oh, no, wait, 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 question. I didn't know that. The Shetland Islands are trying to break from Scotland. Do they want to go with Norway? No, they want to stay as a, I don't know what the legal term is, as a kind of a statelet. We'll give, we'll give them the British template. It's called Dominion Status First, then Free State, then you declare your own republic. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, Andre, the bigger question that John's talking about. Mm. Is this a point in a road, and that road is the dissolution of what we knew as the United Kingdom? It's a huge question, and it's certainly one that is exercising quite a few people in the UK on those who, those who wish to see the United Kingdom stay together and those who really think that a referendum... A referendum is becoming more and more likely in, in Scotland. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. Mm. And, um, you know... Even within the SNP, there are those who wish it would happen sooner and they feel like Nicola Sturgeon is just holding back, you know, and she's not quite committing to it. But Boris Johnson has said that he won't let it happen again. That plays beautifully yeah. into the this SNP's is the, this hands. Is the Catalan it's the card. Catalan, yeah, exactly. exactly. It's the Catalan mm. card. We'll have our own referendum, you know. I don't think that's really a route at the moment that they want to go down, but it's, a, you know, these are, these are aces up their sleeve. It's going to be very difficult not to allow Scotland to have a referendum at some point. And, of course, you know, look what's coming down the road in Northern Ireland. You know, yeah, you mentioned... What do you, what the, do you well, feel? Well, you, so 2021, it's a very big year. It's the centenary, obviously, of the formation... Of, yeah. of partition, formation of Northern Ireland. We've also got uh, a census coming in March. It'll, it'll be the biggest orange parade ever. <laughs> it'll be like the orange parade to douse. Except that it might to, be... To douse all orange parades. It'll be like parades. carnival. It'll be like no. Mardi Gras for prods. <laughs> but it might be on Zoom for all we know, we, you know. But I, I, I think that, you know, because before that, you're going to have the results of the census. Yeah. 
No, and the results of the census are very likely, as, as you said, to show that uh, neither are more, there are fewer uh, than the people who consider themselves identify as Protestant yeah. uh, in Northern Ireland than identify as Catholic. And indeed, that the other, you know, which I'm, I'm fascinated by, what they call on the census the other, who are either people who, you know... The, the, you know but, but it's OK, we just marry you, so it's all right. We yeah. just marry you. <laughs> not committed. Marry in. Marry in, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, so, so what's going to happen there? You know, there's we've got on, you know, built into the Good Friday Agreement this idea that if there appears to be a majority in favour of uh, a referendum, that they ought to be able to have one. Northern Ireland should have a referendum. Now, that's going to, you know, that may take some time again... Everything that's happened with Boris Johnson has only heightened that. I mean, it's good for Sinn Féin, isn't it, would you say? That, oh, you know, I think if you're sitting Boris in Sinn Féin, Johnson, you're saying all day, yeah. can we have two terms of yeah. Boris Johnson, can we please? Have more Boris Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and But, I mean, the idea would be also, if Boris Johnson is unprepared to give the Scots a referendum, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even if the numbers look as if they're going towards a nationalist majority in the North, he will be unprepared. And this, again, will give the nationalists Yes, more but there is a difference, because what they can say... It's easier to say to, to Nicola Sturgeon, this was a once-in-a-lifetime referendum, that's what you said, and we gave you a referendum, and you voted to remain. So that's Right? It. You've had it. That's their argument. Northern Ireland is quite different, because we have enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement, in law for what law may be worth yes, exactly. <laughs> in this new world. But in law, we have enshrined that we have the right, that the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, our old friend Brandon Lewis, is getting a lot of airplay on this podcast. More, yes, than, more, he than, he, more than he'll ever be. He sounds like a very bad B actor. <laughs> Brand, Brandon, Brandon Lewis. Brandon Lewis. He sounds like a sort of, he sounds like a stuntman for Brad Pitt. <laughs> Come on. So this is the way my mind Sorry, works. Is, I'm, I'm not. I've, I'm not. I'm nice picturing something completely different from this. Uh, I knew I'd have to. I knew we'd have to get you off your logical this, train of yeah, thought from, from this kind of like you know middle-aged middle-class Tory. Um, anyway, there, there is a mechanism by which people in, in Northern Ireland would have a referendum on those circumstances, and so it's quite. It's of course we know that the rule book has been torn up so many times over Brexit yeah. that yeah sure they can you know the, the the government can just say no, but there will be pressure and there's there, there, you know there there could be pressure I don't know how Dublin would view this there's wouldn't be pressure to have a referendum tomorrow you know but over time are we on a road towards the breakup of the United Kingdom how long is that road? It may be a lot longer, maybe a longer road is better, but I think it's very hard to argue that we're not on the road. Andre, listen, listen, thanks so much for that. Uh, I'll hopefully see you when this bloody COVID thing is all over. Uh, I can't wait. I can't wait to get to Dublin. Yeah, well, listen, you know, there's always there's always a labba in our gaff, fantastic, as you know. Fantastic, fantastic. Plenty of friends and family there, and I can't wait to be in Dublin. Brilliant. Listen, we'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It was great to get Angie on there, wasn't it? She's got a great great analytical brain and she's such a, you know, she's such a total laugh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She's a great crack. But come here to me. Tell me about the economics of all this now. Lay it out for me, Mac. Well, I mean, the economics, John, are quite simple and yet quite complicated. The first thing to, to, to look at is, is Boris Johnson a cultural warrior? Does he see himself as involved in a cultural collision? Right with his enemies, be they the Scottish Nationalists, the European Union, the Labour Party? Is he trying to reframe the UK in a cultural way? If he is, then what he's doing is he leaves the sort of normal technocratic politics behind. Because cultural yeah. warriors like Trump, like Salvini, all these guys, they don't care about economics, right? Economics is an afterthought. In actual fact, you can see, if you look at this, John, through the lens of the last 50 years of history, since yeah. about 1970-odd, John, economics and technocratic ideas have trumped patriotism and culture for a long, long time. Yeah. And that culminated, I think, with central bankers unelected becoming really, really powerful. The backlash, yeah, yeah, true. A backlash against all this is your average Joe you're, you know, what we were calling the blue-collar Tories in the north of England, or people here in Ireland said, you know what, I want something more than just economics, so I'm going to vote for culture, right? So you can argue that part of the Sinn Féin vote here was culture, part of the Tory vote is culture, Trump's vote is culture, etc., etc., etc. So once you decide that culture is your battleground, economics, law... You break the law. You worry, you know, you don't really worry about forecasts and economics. You say it'll be grand as long as we win the cultural uh, battle. So I think in a way what this signifies is that whatever the Tory party stood for in the past economically, they don't stand for now. They stand for something totally different. And yeah. the question then is, you know, is it back to you? Remember, the, the, remember we were talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect years ago, John? Yeah, yeah, that, I do, actually. That only the truly incompetent overestimate their competence, right? Which was an amazing... And again, the story's great. It's based on a, a bank robber called MacArthur Wheeler, who was a middle-aged, slightly overweight geezer, who in 1996 robbed not one, but two banks in Philadelphia, right? On the same afternoon. Yeah. And when the cops... They couldn't understand. The cops looked at this guy, and the guy winked at the security camera, right? He had no mask. He had no balaclava. He gave the, ca- the security camera a wink. The coppers said, do you know that geezer? And they said, oh, yeah, that's that funny. The overweight guy. He lives around the corner. <laughs> and when the coppers arrived, all he said was, but I wore the juice. Now, the reason he said I wore the juice, he couldn't understand how he was caught. 
What does that mean? Despite winking at the camera, he thought, this is how the truly incompetent overestimate their competence, right? He thought that by covering his face with lemon juice, that he would be invisible. (laughs) (laughs) Because Where did he get that idea from? (laughs) Because when we were kids, do you remember when we were kids, you could rub out with, remember, invisible ink. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and the lemon juice would bring it back up. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So he thought if he covered his face in lemon juice, right? That he'd be that that the dude would be invisible. And therefore he could rob banks with impunity, right? So this is the the, and and anyway, a psychologist picked this two psychologists because people were laughing at this, you know. (laughs) Of course they were. But these two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, said, actually, this is a deep cognitive bias that people have, right? that the truly incompetent overestimate their competence. And dealing with the likes of Johnson, is it just that he's actually really incompetent and he blusters and overestimates his ability and that's what gets him into trouble, right? So is it the Dunning-Kruger effect? Part of me really thought that because I remember looking at the British negotiations teams uh, at Brexit, when the Europeans would arrive in with all their files and their notes and their questions, and the Brits would just arrive in with no notes and kind of bluster through it and talk yeah. about, you know, great trading empires, right? Is it that, in which case the economics that flows from that is kind of terrifying? Or, which is overestimating, again, Britain's ability in a new globalised world where they're no longer a big player, they're actually a small player? Or is it just lying? And that's the question. Jeez, I wonder is that Dunning Kruger effect as infectious as COVID? Because you see, you see it all over the place, especially on the internet. YouTube is full of it, Twitter's full of it, and Johnson's full of it. Yeah, he's like he's like he's kind of made like like Trump. He's kind of made for Twitter. These people yeah, are. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but exactly. Th- but then it, but then let's go deeper, right? Because there is mm. something very deep going on in the UK with respect to the Tory Party, which is the following, John. The Tory Party that we knew for many, many years was the party of free enterprise and free trade. It now looks like the Tory party is now the party of trade barriers, i.e. Brexit, throwing up barriers against your neighbours, and state aids. And that's very important because, let's go back, all of this is over the right of the UK to have state aid, i.e. the right of the UK, UK governments, UK bureaucrats, to pick winners technology winners, i.e., and support them, right? So they become state companies. So that's what it's all about, right? Now, this is a totally different Tory party to the Margaret Thatcher Tory party. The Margaret Thatcher Tory party was always about free enterprise. State aids are wrong, and ultimately, it's a free enterprise gig. The reason they've gone the other way is because of this blue-collar, red-trousers coalition that Johnson has created. So he's got the Red Trouser Brigade, the poshies down the south, yeah, yeah, and the blue-collar guys up in the north. But how do you get the blue-collar guys to vote for you in the north? You make them rich. You give them something to hold on to. How do you do that? Is you create industries up there in the north, right? So this is all. That's what every political party in the UK tries to do. And how successful have they been? Completely unsuccessful. Completely unsuccessful. Yeah. Well, that's what I thought. Yeah. And again, it's it's this idea what I would call Eton Peronism, right? It's really out of the playbook of Juan Perón from Argentina. This idea of the big state, and then you whip up nationalism when you need to, to get you over the line. And you find enemies within, like the Scottish nationalists, and you say, they're the problem. Or you find enemies without, the European Union. But it's a really, as I, as I, as I call it recently, it's a crazy industrial policy. 
The idea that you would think that yeah. bureaucrats can pick industries better than industrialists y themselves. Yeah. Yeah, 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 Right? And it's, as I said before, John, it's basically, it's British Leyland economics for the Tesla age. Yeah. Think about that, right? So it's That's like, really good. It's like the economics of, you know, don't knock British Leyland. The Mac Williamses always had British Leyland. We admit, you you do, did? Do you remember my Al fella bought the worst car in the world? A Austin Princess. I do. I remember that <laughs> so well. But it was a cool looking car at the time. It was. Awful yoke now, it I was think. an awful yoke now. But I tell you what, the funny thing is, it just broke all the time because it was made in Wolverhampton or somewhere where the lads were on yeah. strike all the time. Yeah, you wouldn't see many of them in a classic car show. But like, <laughs> it's that idea that you'll recreate the heyday of British industry by picking winners. That's very, very difficult. And the reason it's very difficult, John, is that companies, successful companies, are not created by committee. They evolve in the market. Yes, of It's course. an evolutionary yeah, yeah. process. And you look at all the very successful companies, it's trial and error, it's tinkering around, it's making mistakes, it's figuring out what the market wants. None of this comes by committee from Whitehall or from London or from Westminster. Where it comes from, it always comes from the bottom up. So what has happened, John, is the UK have completely changed what it means to be a Tory. And a Tory now is a protectionist. A Tory now is a state aider. A Tory now is somebody who turns their back on free trade and puts sovereignty over and above economics, which leads me back to the idea, John, that it's all about cultural warriors, not about normal politicians. So what we would judge a normal politician by is like, do they make sense? Is the policy working, etc.? That's all gone out the window. And what they have seemed to me done in the UK in a very, very short period, John, is turned on its head what it means to be a Tory and changed yeah. completely. And therefore, it strikes me that they are leading themselves not just down a garden path constitutionally, but also economically, because it means that the UK is going to become a big state country where they interfere all the time and they try to pick winners, whereas the rest of the world, although the government always has a role, John, it always has a role, like the education system, the tax system, all these things have a role. But yeah. the last time we were anointing companies in, the, in Western Europe was in the 1960s and 70s, and most of those efforts seemed to fail. I know I always go on about the, the Mango Mussolini and his tribe there, but he's conducting his own kind of culture war in the States. And I kind of wonder how much the Trump playbook Boris is following. Because as you were saying, the Republican Party were always the party of free trade and out-and-out -out capitalism. Oh, well, I, but that think... seems to be changing a bit insofar as the state aid that you're talking about. Trump is providing millions, billions of dollars in tax breaks and his new tax law that he brought in a couple of years back to a lot of American corporations. So while it's not quite the same, well, it's going along the same lines though, isn't it? Oh no, it, it definitely is. And I mean, there, look, don't get me wrong, it's never been a pure A idea versus pure B idea. For example, it was Eisenhower, now going back to the 50s, who coined the yeah. expression, the military-industrial complex, right? And what Eisenhower was saying was that there is a parallel government in, and this is, comes from the general who won the Second World War, right? This is a real mm. military man, not some trumped-up mm, yeah. gumshite, right? This is a guy who actually did the fighting. But Eisenhower warned in the United States 
that a military-industrial complex was building up and it would take more and more of the state budget and it would lead the Americans into more and more wars simply to feed itself as part of the economy. And I thought, you know, incredibly opposite, incredibly accurate description of this. So it's always been there, this idea that the state will be close to certain industries and those industries will be favoured, right? So, for example, it's very, very clear that the motor industry in the United States lobbied for roads to be built in the 50s rather than trains to be built in order for them to be able to sell cars, right? So we've seen this all, all around the world. I think Trump and Johnson, their playbook is very much like Modi's playbook in India, yeah. All these strong men, it's the same, it's the same basic idea. But what it is, John, if it has legitimacy, and I think it has, it's a reaction against the technocracy that ruled the world up until I think the financial crash. That economists were elevated, who I and I even, you know, and I don't think we should be. I think we should be part of the discussion, but I don't think we should be the be all and end all of the discussion where technocrats were elevated. And the average guy is thinking, you know what? These people don't speak to me, right? There was a very brilliant article written about uh, blue-collar workers in the United States just after Trump won. And I can't remember the journalist. I'll find it, hopefully, maybe. But Google it. Uh, She said something very brilliant about blue-collar guys for Trump. She said, blue-collar workers in the United States do not despise the rich. They despise the professional class. And I thought it was a really interesting point. Whereas basically, it's that blue-collar workers, they want to be rich. And it was really interesting. She talked to her dad, this journalist. Her dad was working in factories. And he said, you know what? I want to be the guy who gives orders someday. I don't want to be the guy who always takes orders. And that guy, Trump, because he's rich, he seems like the guy who gives orders and doesn't take orders. And what they really despise are the professional classes who talk down to them, who always regard the blue-collar class, the working class, as expendable. And, for example, for years and years, left-leaning parties always thought that they could count on blue-collar guys to vote for them just as a matter of identity. And as we see in the UK, that's all collapsed in the north of England. So there is a lot of parallels. There are huge amount of parallels. But what I'd like to say, John, is this is an opportunity for Ireland. How do you mean? How is this going to affect Ireland? Well, John, I have an opinion that all this is going to work out quite well for us, right? I'm going to park what Andre was talking about, the North. That's a totally different question. Let's just look at the immediate effect of the United Kingdom abandoning free trade and the rule of law and going down the state aids route, right? And because basically what the UK have basically done, there's a gamble now at the moment between abandoning their main market, the EU, and hoping that their bureaucrats succeed in picking winners in the tech industry. That's the gamble they've made, right? I think that's as clear as that. It's as clear as that, right? So they risk no deal, which means losing the EU as a market, where half of their trade goes. And what they're hoping for is the gamble is that their bureaucrats and politicians will be able to identify companies better than Silicon Valley. That's what they've 
going for. Right. Eek, that, what are they basing that on? That's you know? that's the Dunning Kruger. <laughs> There's my point, right? So <laughs> it brings a whole new meaning to a bunch of lemons. <laughs> Let's go back to what it means for little old Ireland here, right? And again, this is not about England or English people, right? I've always said this, right? That basically there's 400,000 Irish citizens live in England. We are their biggest ethnic minority over there. In terms of people born in Ireland. Our cousins, your brother lives over there. You know, we've all got mates and cousins and family and old, old friends. Our oldest friends, people like Andrea there. Like, these are all old friends of ours. This is not about England or English people. This is about the way the government in London has changed in the last 12 months. Now... Yeah. If Britain goes down this route, Britain then becomes a very unattractive place for foreign investors to invest. Because if, you, if you're capable of breaking international law, you're capable of breaking corporate law and company law as well. Sure, you're capable of, of doing it right. And if you're prepared to walk away from your biggest market, that's not a sign that any investor will say, oh, that's cool, that's fine, right? They might get loads of Weatherspoon pubs out of this, but I'm not sure they're going to get any tech companies, <laughs> right? Do you see what I mean, Cheap right? Beer. So if you, yeah. yeah, so if you look at and so the relationship between Ireland and England economically, Ireland and Britain economically, has been one of profound decoupling from the Irish side over the last fifty years as an explicit policy which has actually worked. So I'll give you a statistic, John. In the early nineteen fifties, when church, which is an era beloved of the Brexiteers, they seem to think the fifties was some sort of elegiac, beautiful time uh, of the United Kingdom, right? And Churchill was in power for the last time, okay, in the early 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ireland did 92% of all our exports went to the UK. 92%, right? So we were yeah. basically part of the UK economy. Today, that figure is 11%. So what you've seen is a dramatic decoupling of the Irish economy. Now, we're still, still incredibly important in agriculture and in tourism, two yes, big sectors. But for yeah. the rest of the economy, we've seen a decoupling, right? So that's something to appreciate, that we're not that dependent on them. And the reason we aren't is because the American corporations largely have come in here and they have set up a different economic roadmap, which is largely exporting back to the States or to the European Union. Okay? So that's the first thing. Yeah. That will continue, right? That will continue because that's the business model in Ireland. And if the Brits are going to go down the protectionist route, more investment, not less investment, will come here. Right? And all we've got to do is just do the same things. And of course, the question then is how do we manage it? Our problem is we can't manage investment because we can't get our infrastructure right and our housing right. But if we could get those two right and say that's our job, then this has a significant positive because in certain industries, Ireland and Britain are competitors with each other, right? That we compete for the same sort of investment. That's the first thing. And in terms of actually, Evidencing how that's changed both economies. If you look since 1995, John, this idea of income, right? So we have this strategy, which warts and all has worked, and I know it's leading to problems and the Apple tax issue and all that, right? But warts and all, this has actually transformed the economy here over the last 50-odd years, as you saw from those export figures. But if you look at income figures, right? If you look at, for example, since 1995, Irish income per capita using the CSO's preferred new measure, which is called GNI Star, which tries to strip out the impact of multinationals and how they distort our figures, right? It's basically, they're trying to strip out the leprechaun economics, 
which is what uh, Paul Krugman called it, right? <laughs> right. Now, if you just look at the figures, right? Irish income has risen since 1995 from 13,000 euros, 934 per head, to 40,000 euros, 655 euros per head, right? In 2018. Since 95. That's since 95. So that's nearly three times higher. GDP wow. has expanded, right? Yeah. Which is a phenomenal result. And that figure is trying to strip out all the distortions. The same figure in the UK, UK per capita income in 1995 was 21,000, nearly 22,000 sterling, right? So they were yep. much richer than us in 1995 per capita, right? Yep. Now their per capita income is about 30,500 sterling. So wow. not only are they significantly poorer per head, but their improvement in living standards over the last 25-odd years has only been less than half, while we have almost tripled our living standards, right? So what you can see is the policy is working here on one macro level. Now, if it continues to work here, and if the UK goes down this, what I would call British Leyland route for the Tesla age, right? Lots more yeah. investment is going to come here, right? And that's not talking about the dislocation of Scottish nationalism and what that does to the feel of the UK and the coherence of the UK. And I suppose the lesson in economics, John, is the world is always watching you, right? If you're a small country, the world is always watching you. Yeah. And when your neighbour goes mad, right, or <laughs> begins to show signs of weirdness... Dementia. Of dementia, right? And delusion, more to the point. Yeah. All we have to do in Ireland is do nothing and we look pretty sane. And sanity, John, in the third decade of the 21st century is a massive, massive economic asset. So, Mark, a bit of good news. The CPD stuff that we've been working on and promising for the past while is now available. Give us a quick rundown of what it's all about. Yeah, no, it's great, John. It's what we've taken is the course and the tutorials, and we've made them CPD applicable in the sense that if you want to get CPD points, and a huge range of our listeners and people who might not have listened to us are CPD compliant. They need CPD. It's a continual professional development. And now they can learn economics with us and get their CPD points. So I think it's a really interesting development because lots and lots of people were talking to us on Patreon or me on Twitter saying, can I get points for this? Can I get a, you know, I'm yeah. really interested in studying economics, but it'd be really nice for me to also get a little piece of parchment, a little certificate, some points, etc. And now we are live. So if you want to learn economics with me, to learn macroeconomics in a way in which it's never been learned or taught before, have a gander at Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Join me. We'll learn economics together and you will get your CPD points. 